Well, I do want to <clears throat> excuse me, encourage you again, as last week, that if you have not yet verified that you're in our church database, there are some friendly folk just to the right outside of the worship center doors who can help you log in and not look like this when our pastors pray for you. Um, it is tremendously helpful to have a picture and also uh, information about how we can contact you if we need to. That this is a members-only database. We are not selling it to the public. Google and your credit cards have already done that. So members only. And uh, you control how much information is released, not us. So um, please make sure that you are in that database. <clears throat> it's a great help to us as we uh, communicate with you and, and seek to pray for and shepherd you. So again, after the service, right out there at the table, there'll be somebody to help you. Would you bow with me in prayer? And we'll look at Matthew 19 together today. Father, we ask now for a kindness that these scriptures might become ours, that they might shape, strengthen, reform us, turn us around, head us in a new direction. As each of us have need, may your spirit have his way with us and may we happily cooperate as your people. We pray in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> All right, we're going to look at Matthew 19, <clears throat> and you'll have to pardon me, I'm a, I think I'm about to lose my voice after yelling at the first, those incalcitrant, recalcitrant first service people for 40 minutes. Um, Jesus in Matthew 19 uh, is beginning a journey, and this journey is going to take Jesus um, to Jerusalem and to the cross. It's his last journey, and it, it's likely just a matter of months when the teaching that we're going to look at today is going on uh, before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and dies for our sins on the cross. And all along the way, opposition is ramping up to Jesus. People are opposing Jesus' teach, teaching rather, and his ministry. And in Matthew 19, we find that uh, when Jesus had had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. You know, I've been going back through Matthew and just noticing all these little short summary statements uh, about Jesus' ministry, just a verse or two, and it says things like this, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And I wonder, how many lives were transformed in that and are represented by that little statement, and he healed them there. How many children were given back to their parents, whole and healthy, hidden away in that little statement, and he healed them there? Were there tens? Were there hundreds? Maybe more than that? Um, it makes me think about what an extraordinary life Jesus lived that these kinds of wondrous acts are confined to one little statement, and he healed them there. I mean, this, this is a remarkable life. I guarantee you, I heal somebody, I'm writing a book about it, all right? Jesus heals, does miracles, and it's just, and he healed them there. What a Savior we have. What a life he lived when it can just be captured 
like that as almost, almost commonplace. It also makes me think about what is recorded here in detail for us really, really matters. These things, um, Matthew, under the inspiration of God's own spirit, has discerned that we really need this teaching that does come to us in detail. So let's give our full undivided attention to Matthew 19, starting in verse 3, where those Pharisees do come to him and test him, asking, is it lawful, Jesus, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the religious leaders, especially the ones called the Pharisees, have been stalking Jesus. If you notice, they keep popping up, asking questions, doing tests. They are trying to trap Jesus. Um, and this time, the test focuses on his teaching, in particular on divorce. And the question is, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, for any reason? Is it lawful, they said. They mean, is it biblical? Okay. For a husband divorces his wife for any reason. And they are inviting Jesus into what in their day was a contemporary debate concerning legitimate grounds for divorce. When, when was it okay to do this? And it's based back in the book of Deuteronomy. In this verse in uh, chapter 24, it says, uh, Moses writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, okay? So their question is, the debate of the day was what's the some decency, some indecency rather, um, that caused the certificate of divorce to be written? And there were two main schools of thought in the day. There was one um, that was taught, represented by Rabbi um, Shammai, and he felt that only matters of sexual immorality were what that some indecency referred to. And as a result, a certificate of divorce could be written. There was another school of thought that was represented by a rabbi named Hillel, and he believed a much broader interpretation um, by some writers, you'd think almost anything. Famous incidents are you could get a divorce if she burned your dinner, okay? Or if you found a better looking woman. So this school had a really broad interpretation of when you could give someone a certificate of divorce. Now, D.A. Carson points out, though, that although they disagreed um, which divorces, over which divorces should be permitted, they were happy to accept each other's rulings in individual cases. So in other words, if the more lenient school sanctioned a divorce, um, the more conservative school would recognize that divorce as legitimate, even though it was in question according to their own rules. And as a result, divorce was running rampant in Jesus' day in some circles. Can you get a divorce for any cause? That should sound really familiar to you. Today, we call it no-fault divorce. Okay. I was born in 1958. So if you do the math, I'm 35. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm really glad you guys are bad at math. Um, so the year before I was born, how many states do you think had no-fault divorce? One state. 
And now it's the rule of the land. Um, in the year uh, 2000, at the end of his 40-year political career, uh, Senator Patrick Moynihan said this. He said, the biggest change that I've seen is that in those 40 years of political leadership, he says, is that the family structure has come apart all over the North Atlantic world. He says, the change has occurred in an historical instant and it was something that was unimaginable 40 years ago. Now, there's a historian named Lawrence Stone, and he says that the scale of marital breakdown in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent. No historical precedent. At no time in history, with the possibility of imperial Rome, has the institution of marriage been more problematic than today. And just as kind of a a case in point, the poster child for this would be in the city of Chicago a couple years back, and I guarantee you it's still running around there, there was a billboard that was done, interestingly enough, by an all-female law firm. And it had, according to their description, pictures of hot male and female bodies, and in the middle it had the message, um, life's short, get a divorce. And this is how their website uh, describes it. It says, this light-hearted ad campaign. Really? A light-hearted ad campaign? Demonstrates the message, which says that everyone deserves happiness. The message is meant to be thought-provoking and tantamount to a motivational missive to live your best life and be happy. Life is way too short to stay in an unhappy marriage or relationship. If you're unhappy or have other reasons to end your relationship, they say, we can provide a viable solution. And so as a result of the overwhelmingly positive response they got to their billboard, their ad campaign, you can now go to their website and you can buy merchandise. You can, for nine bucks, you can buy a t-shirt that says, life is short, get a divorce. That, by the way, would be a horrible waste of nine bucks. I ran across this counsel to a counselee from a Christian counselor. God made marriage for people. He didn't make people for marriage. He provided this so that people could enjoy each other to the fullest. I say if you have two people that are not thriving healthily in a situation, I say remove the marriage. A Christian counselor. For any cause. That's the question. Pharisees want to know, Jesus, what do you say? What Jesus is about to teach us is of the utmost importance, not just for them long ago, but in our day. Remember, though, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. Okay? They are not coming to their rabbi for marriage counseling. That's not what's happening here. They have likely heard Jesus teach on this. It's happened a couple other times in in the Gospels prior to this account. And I think they already know his answer, and I think that's part of the, the trap. So here, in a nutshell, is Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. He he answers the Pharisees. Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever therefore God has joined together, 
Let not man separate. This is the teaching of Jesus on marriage and divorce. And what Jesus does is he takes them back, not to Deuteronomy, but all the way back to the beginning, to the creation account in the book of Genesis. And D.A. Carson wisely says that Jesus took this tact because he was persuaded that their question was seriously deficient. It smacked a little too much of what will God let us get away with rather than what does God desire for us. And that's really the way we need to approach these really difficult questions of marriage and divorce and even remarriage. The question on our hearts needs to be, what will please my Jesus, my Savior who loved me and gave himself for me, what will please him? And then, and then we need to strive by all our being to live that answer out. Okay? That's the posture we want to have about these questions. So Jesus quotes from Genesis and he establishes a number of foundational principles in this short teaching. First of all, twice he says, the two become one. Two become one flesh. A truly mysterious union takes place. Dale Bruner says that physical union brings metaphysical union. That sexual intercourse delivers a spiritual interconnection so deep that it should be entered only where there are strong undergirding foundations of spiritual faith and biblical marriage. Now, I've been walking out this to become one thing personally for over 31 years. And honestly, it's still a mystery to me. I know that in a really unique way, I am for Steph and she is for me. And that I know her, and that I am known by her. That I am near to her, and she to me. And that I depend upon her, and she upon me. And that we share uniquely together the sign of the covenant, and I'm not talking about wedding bands, um, exclusively with one another. It's a mystery to me. The two become one. Jesus says, a mysterious union takes place. And he says, this is a union between a man and a woman, male and female. This is God's design from the beginning, that they should be one flesh. A man and a woman should become one flesh. Again, Dale Bruner's really good at this stuff. He says, if God had supremely intended solitary life, God would have created humans one by one. If God had intended polygamous life, God would have created one man and several women. If God had intended homosexual life, God would have made two men or two women. But that God intended monogamous heterosexual life is shown by God's creation of one man for one woman. Now, homosexual marriage, as it's called, though increasingly legal in our land, is something other than this, obviously. It is something other than biblical marriage. It is something other than Jesus' marriage. Okay? Marriage as Jesus taught it. Um, and let me step outside of this and say, so what is all this teaching 
about maleness and femaleness, prerequisite for marriage, mean for those of you who call North Wake home, but you struggle with same-sex attraction? Um, A couple things. You need to know that here at North Wake, because of Jesus' teaching, we don't welcome or honor same-sex marriage. We don't. Um, it's, It's not welcomed here. But you are welcomed here. Along with people who are tempted to be polygamous or polyandrous, you can look that up later, or fornicators or pornographers or whatever our sexual bent is. We here are what Martin Luther called all repenting sinners, all of us. And you, you are welcome here as one of those repenting sinners. But clearly, Jesus understands marriages to be a mysterious union formed between one man, one woman. Okay? And he understands this clearly to be and uniquely to be God's work. God is the one who makes the two one. It is what God joins together. So when I perform a wedding ceremony, I don't join anyone together. Somebody goes down to the justice of the peace. The state does not make the two one. This, Jesus says, is God's work. Uniquely God's work. As a pastor, I'm just declaring what God does. So God takes the two and makes them one. Bruner puts it this way, the great God, this august God, is the subject of Jesus' grand command here. Jesus does not say, therefore, what nature has joined together, or even, therefore, what your love has joined together, but therefore, what the great God has joined together, man must not separate. Clearly, Jesus sees marriage as God's, uniquely God's work. And then lastly, he says, we must not separate it. We must not separate what God has joined together. To do so puts us in opposition to God's own work and design. To put it plainly, we find ourselves at odds with God himself when we divorce. That's contrary to God's way. That's why we call it sin. And unmistakably, when Jesus cites Genesis here authoritatively, to divorce is to disobey Jesus. Which we would say is really right at the heart of a definition of sin, right? But we as a people are horribly confused about this. There was a recent study um, done in religion and ethics, ethic, excuse me, Newsweekly poll that said that 71% of Americans agree that God's plan for marriage is one woman, one man for life. 71% agree with that. But only 22% think divorce is a sin. And only 34% of evangelical Christians, folk like us, say divorce is a sin. We are all confused about this. But we are not confused because Jesus' teaching is not clear. He cites authoritatively the scripture that says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay? Clear, clear as a bell. 
We must not separate. We must do everything in our power, if we honor Jesus' teaching here, to not separate, okay? to not divorce. Fox News tells the story of a couple named Cindy and Chip uh, Altamas, who after 10 years of marriage were in the long process of getting a divorce, and it, Proverbial baggage they brought from previous marriages seemed too great to overcome, so they, they separated and agreed to date other people. So a ways into their painful separation, Chip was in the hospital with kidney failure, and with his health deteriorating rapidly, his soon-to-be ex-wife came to his aid, in spite of Chip's being in another relationship with another woman at the time. She says, he's still my husband. And there was no way I could walk around with two kidneys, and he had none. Cindy told that to the press, and she said it was the right thing to do. So she agreed to donate a kidney, telling Chip there were no strings attached, there was no written agreement concerning a better share in divorce court. And the transplant took place, and a funny thing happened as they both recovered in the hospital. They fell back in love. Chip thought to himself, why would I want to date someone else whom I, when I have a woman who would give part of herself so I can keep on living? He put an end to his other relationship and asked Cindy to come back home with him. And the two, at the time of this writing, had been married 17 years. So how hard should you work to save your marriage? You should give up your kidney to save your marriage. Whatever it takes. And that, honestly, that's the kind of sacrificial love that it takes to save a marriage. Now, if someone wants to know, what does Jesus think about marriage and divorce? I know of no clearer text than the one we just read, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He believes an actual union takes place, an actual union takes place, that it, that it must be between a man and a woman, that it is the very work of God himself, and that man must not separate what God has joined together. That's what Jesus believes about marriage, marriage and divorce. And this should not have been new news to the Pharisees. Okay? Jesus has already taught virtually the same teaching on two other occasions. Um, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and Luke 16. Both of which precede, in all likelihood, the text we're looking at. I think they knew what Jesus believed, but were setting a trap for him. And once, he's, once he said it in pharisaical fashion, they launched their, aha, we got you. This is what they say. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Okay, um, the Pharisees, you remember, they were the law protectors. They protected the law of Moses from violation, even by creating rules, fences to keep people from breaking the law, extra commands. So as law protectors, Moses, who was the lawgiver, was kind of like their hero. He was the guy. And so now they've got Jesus disagreeing with Moses. Gotcha. Okay. And it comes out of that passage in Deuteronomy 24. Listen closely to the passage they're referring to. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to, it's getting complicated here, took her to be his wife, when her, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. So in response to what they say, based on that complicated passage, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus corrects them. Moses does not command anyone to get a divorce. Deuteronomy 24, there's no command there. It's permitted. It's a concession, likely for the protection of the wife in this kind of crazy ongoing remarriage scenario that's unfolding in Deuteronomy 24. Now, let's be clear what Jesus is not doing here. He is not pitting what God says in Genesis versus what Moses says in Deuteronomy. Like God says one thing, Moses says another. God is speaking through Moses in Deuteronomy just as he speaks in Genesis. That's not Jesus' point. But Jesus is saying that Deuteronomy is not the way God intended it to be from the beginning. It's a permission granted, a concession given because of the sinful hardness of our hearts. Dale Brunard says, according to Jesus, divorce is not God's glad pleasure for us. It is God's sad concession to the sinful human condition. So Jesus says to them, This certificate of divorce, it's not a command. It's a concession. It's not according to God's original design. It's a concession because of our hard hearts. And C.S. Lewis has beautifully described the Christian perspective on divorce. He says, Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a body because the two became one, right? It's a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think the operation so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it is a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are still agreed it's more like having your, both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. So Jesus goes on and says, I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now let me put this teaching up next to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality and makes her, makes her then commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So without getting bogged down in the details, and there are a mountain of details, interpretive details to bog us down in this particular verse, Jesus in chapter 5 of Matthew 
describes divorce as an adulterous act. Here in chapter 19, he describes remarriage as an adulterous act. When he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We are perhaps accustomed to Jesus' teaching about divorce, but when he says that remarriage can be adulterous, um, that should give us pause. Remarriage, according to Jesus, is not a right that's granted to everyone who chooses a divorce. Jesus says that remarriage is, perhaps more likely than not, an adulterous act. Um, This, again, it's the teaching of Jesus on these matters. Yet in each of these instances, though not in all, not in some other passages. Jesus cites here in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 an exception to these adulterous charges. He says when it involves sexual immorality, except for sexual immorality, it's an exception clause, it's been called. And it's been vigorously studied and exhaustively debated. Some would say there's really no exception here at all. And they might explain it this way, that it's referring, instead of actually to marriage, it's referring to a betrothal period, like Mary and Joseph, for instance. Um, But others would say that it does apply to marriage. And in that case, it refers to a case of sustained, unrepentant immorality. That's the language that our North Wake position statement uses. Sustained, unrepentant sexual immorality. And even those of us who would allow for an exception in marriage that would permit divorce and remarriage based on sustained, unrepentant immorality. It's a thing that is permitted. It is never commanded. It may be permitted for a divorce and a remarriage to happen. It is never commanded. Never. So I've occasionally talked to people who at the point of their marriage have drawn a line in the sand and essentially it sounds like this. You cheat. I'm out of here. You cheat on me. It usually sounds like this. You cheat on me. You're out of here. You know, I I would not counsel that stance based on what Jesus is teaching. Harold Smith wisely says, we've made adultery grounds for divorce. In actuality, it's grounds for forgiveness. Bill Heth put it this way. He said, I think Jesus would label as unforgiving someone who divorced their spouse for a one-night stand. What do we do then if we follow Jesus' teaching when a spouse is unfaithful? We forgive as we have been forgiven. Think about this with me. Remember the context for what we're studying? What was the last thing that Jesus taught on before he taught on this? Flip back in your Bibles. Matthew 18. What we taught him here last week is the last thing that Jesus taught before he taught on divorce Uh, marriage and divorce. 
Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he told the story, remember the story Jesus told, of the forgiving master and the unforgiving servant. And the master summoned that servant to him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? We forgive as we've been forgiven. We love as we have been loved. Um, In its outstanding article entitled, The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer cites one verse as the mark of a follower, the authenticating mark of a follower of Jesus Christ, John 13, 35. It says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. Now we could add to that text Romans 13, 8, that says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. 1 Peter 1, where Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 John 3, where he says, we should love one another. And 1 John 3, 23, where he says, um, this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. 1 John 4 says, dear friends, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 11 says, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 2 John 1 says, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Followers of Jesus even love our enemies, right? Jesus says in Luke 6, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To fail to love. To refuse to forgive. Perhaps especially in marriage is to deny your faith at one of the most strategic points of its application. What is the very mark of a Christian? Dale Bruner says, marriage is a form of discipleship, occasionally a cross, and sometimes it's a deep suffering by which, because it is so daily and personal, that disciples can, in an exemplary way, show their loyalty to Jesus and to each other. And this, this is the heart of the teaching of Jesus concerning your marriage. If you want to know what Jesus teaches about your marriage, this is it. These are not easy words. I know that. They were not easy for the disciples either. Look at what the disciples say in response to this. The disciples say to him, uh, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Okay. They evidently had been so influenced by this kind of divorce on demand culture that they walked in That when Jesus raises the bar like this, they miss the good and the beauty of this hard teaching. And all they can think of, whoa, that bar's high. I wish I was single, you know. Um, But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. So what saying? What's the saying? 
It could be all that he's taught about divorce and marriage and remarriage. Or the saying could be what the disciples just said, that it's better not to marry. And I'm going to lean us that direction this morning, that what the disciples have just said is the saying that Jesus is referring to. No one can receive this saying, it's better not to marry, except those to whom it is given. And we should be clear that what they're referring to is what some of your Bibles may still call celibacy, okay? not mere singleness. Celibacy would be singleness with sexual purity, we should say. And that may be that Jesus has in mind those who have a lifelong calling, but it has happy application to all of Jesus' followers who find themselves single at this point in their lives. Jesus says, God gives this to people. It is not his curse. It is his kindness. And he goes on to say, for there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And John Stott, I'm going to just speak to you, let John Stott speak to those of you who are single. John Stott, um, at the time of this writing, he'd been single for 90 years. He's got some credibility in what he's talking about. He's a great, uh, one of our greatest Bible scholars of our day. He says, I doubt, he's writing about um, why people remain single. He says, I doubt we could find a clearer answer to this then than in the recorded teaching of Jesus himself in Matthew 19, 11, and 12, these very verses. He was talking about eunuchs, meaning people who remain single and celibate. He listed three reasons why people do not marry. He says, first, for some it's because they were born that way. This could include those with a physical defect or, or with a homosexual orientation. Such are congenitally unlikely to marry, he says. Second, there are those who were made that way by men. That would include victims of the horrible ancient practice of forcible castration, but it would also include all those today who remain single under any compulsion or external circumstance. One thinks of a daughter who feels under obligation to forego marriage in order to care for her elderly parents. Third, he says, others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. These people, who are under no pressure from within or without, voluntarily put marriage aside either temporarily or permanently in order to undertake some work for the kingdom which demands single-minded devotion. And for those of you who are single here at North Wake, I just want you to know that as your pastor, I am very mindful of the way you do serve the kingdom of heaven in our church. And if I could put a word to it, I would say beautifully. I know that you serve in ways that those of us who are married and have families simply cannot. And I am deeply thankful for you, as are all of the families that you bless in our church. We thank God for you. Now let me let John Stott speak to you once again about why people remain single. He says it's noteworthy that Jesus himself, before listing these three categories of single people, said that not everybody could accept what he was about to say, but only those to whom it's been given. He says, if singleness is a gift, however, so is marriage. Indeed, I, have found myself, I myself have found help in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, for here the apostle writes, each man or woman 
has his or her own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Gift, he says, translates charisma, which is a gift of God's grace. So whether we are single or married, we need to receive our situation from God as His own special grace gift to us. And then He offers you this advice. He says, don't be in too great a hurry to get married. We human beings do not reach maturity until we're about 25. To marry before this runs the risk of finding yourself at 25 married to somebody who's a very different person at the age of 20. So be patient. Pray daily that God will guide you to your life partner or show you if he wants you to remain single. He says, second, lead a normal social life. Develop many friendships. And third, if God calls you to singleness, don't fight it. Remember the key text. Each person has his or her own gift of God's grace. So what do we do? What are we to do with Jesus' hard teaching about marriage? Let me walk back through it and speak speak to some of you about it. First of all, if you are divorced or remarried, I would point you towards the good and wise counsel of our elders from North Wake's marriage statement. You can find it online at our website. It says, first, the scriptures for those who are remarried. It says, first, the scriptures do not give us any clear teaching that would indicate that the second marriage should be ended. We believe that God is most pleased when the new marriage pursues full obedience to His Word, including a lifelong commitment to the current marriage as a way to honor Him. In order to do this, it may be necessary to repent of past sins related to the previous marriage and divorce and even the remarriage that followed. Scripture calls us to repent of any and all our sins when they are made plain to us. And the sins involved in divorce and remarriage are surely no exception. Sin does not simply dissolve with time, but instead is resolved through humble confession and repentance, leading us to forgiveness through Christ. You, if you are divorced and remarried, or remarried, know that you are welcome here. Sometimes when, when a church like ours tries so hard to honor Jesus' teaching, it can sound like you're not welcome. That's not what we're saying. It's not what Jesus would say. You are welcome here. Okay? Just like the rest of us repenting sinners, you are welcome here. Now what about those of you who are in a hard marriage? You may today feel like I just closed your escape hatch. I would rather by faith urge you to believe that Jesus has just closed the door to a snare set for your soul that will greatly devastate your family, the church, and your faith if you persist through it. I want to urge you to believe that God's ways, Jesus' ways, are true and good for you. You're not some aberration in the plan of God that He's overlooked. His ways are true and good for you. Staying and working with a I'll give you my kidney kind of love is the path of no regret before God and I would add before your children. Again, listen to our Northwake statement on marriage. Our elders and pastors at Northwake are committed to shepherding our families through all stages of marriage, the good and the difficult. 
We are committed to continue studying and bringing the wisdom of the Scriptures to you with compassion and honesty in your time of need. Should you find yourself in a difficult place in your marriage or if you're considering divorce or remarriage, our elders urge you to meet with us and to seek our shepherding in this crucial area. We are always available to pray for you and to bring the counsel of the Scriptures to you for your good and for God's joy and honor. What if you're here and you're single or you're in, you're in a good marriage, your marriage is in a good place? For those of us in those situations, we are here to be there for those who are struggling when they are tempted to throw in the towel and walk away from it all. We need to listen well, encourage them to trust Christ, and we need to pray. We need to pray. And so, providentially, at 6 o'clock tonight in this room, guess what we're doing? We're meeting to pray. And I know we're praying tonight for people who are in hard, struggling marriages. And so some of you are thinking, we're doing pretty good. I think I'll pass. Don't pass. It is your role to be here to pray for your brothers and sisters in their time of need. Give up the game. Come and pray. Honor Jesus. Come and pray for your brothers and sisters who are struggling. Now, if you're in a hard marriage, this afternoon I want, you to, I want you to pray before God and think about how you could wisely come tonight and share your need. And let us tonight lavish the mercy and love and grace of God on you through prayer. Okay? Let us do that for you tonight. Now, of course, you don't have to wait till tonight to have someone pray for you. Um, we, it's, our, it's our pattern at the close of the services to invite people to come forward to pray or to be prayed for. And you might come today to have prayer for your own marriage or to consecrate yourself to pray for someone you know and love and care about. Um, maybe someone in your family whose marriage is horribly broken and you need God's mercy to make it through. Now, it's entirely possible when someone comes down front, you might be tempted to say, oh my gosh, Larry and Stephanie were down front praying. Their marriage must be on the rocks. You don't know that. We might be down here praying for you, okay? (laughs) Don't judge people who come down for prayer. You don't know why they're here, except that they're exemplary in their willingness to cry out to Jesus, for their own marriages and for the marriages of people they love, okay? So let's close with worship of Christ in prayer and in song, Christ who is our solid rock, who is our anchor, our hope, and our stay. Let's stand. Let's worship Christ, okay? Mm -hmm.